Episode 10 of Off Course with Claude Harmon always comes to you every Wednesday. This week's guest, Phil Kenyon, one of the best putting instructors on the planet, works with some of the biggest names in golf. And um, if I've got anything putting related that I'm thinking about or have questions about, Phil's always one of the first people that I try and get in contact with because I think he does a fantastic job. So it's going to be a great listen. And I think everybody wants to putt better. And so Phil is definitely going to help with that. But let's unpack what happened last week. Cameron Champ gets a win. uh, And I think the interesting part of it is I think because we're starting to see some players come out and talk a little bit about struggles that they've been having off the golf course. And, you know, this has not been the best year for, for Cam, even though he picks up his third win, he's kind of talked a little bit about having to kind of go through a little bit of a reset, you know, things that he was struggling with. Uh, Matt Wolf's been talking about that. Bubba Watson's been talking about that. And I, I think it's, it's always interesting to to look at how what's happening off the golf course is affecting what's happening on the golf course. And, and, and I see that more and more with a lot of golfers to where if, you know, everything off the golf course is great, it's easier for them to play good. And if things aren't off the golf course, you know, where they want them, it's a struggle. And, and I think when you're playing golf professionally and you're traveling as much as everyone's traveling and playing so many weeks in a row, I think it's really, really easy to forget how hard it is to to perform week in and week out. And I think Cam has talked a little bit about having to just to have a complete reset that he wasn't having any fun on the golf course. I think Matt Wolf talked about that. Bubba's talked about that. And I think it's really, we're in an interesting time because I think more and more players are starting to feel like they can open up about you know, the struggles they're having, you know, off the golf course to where I think everyone thinks that everybody just has everything together and, you know, there's no problems and stuff. And it's hard to perform when, when things aren't going well off the golf course. Um, you know, it was a shootout at the 3M. We had a lot of players on the leaderboard and, um, Cameron looked like he was struggling a little bit physically coming down the stretch. And then I think a lot of people were scratching their head on 18, the par five, taking out driver, missed the fairway and ended up making a pretty good up and down for par. You know, he had a two shot lead. So maybe that's why he pulls out the driver, but the commentators were talking about it. The stats look like it wasn't necessarily the right move, but I think it was an important win for Cameron um, with all of the length that he has and all of the distance that he has. He's one of those players that you would think would be in the mix week in and week out. Um, I, th- I think the knock against, Cam, it's, it's been his his wedge game, but when he needed to, on 18, stood up from, you know, right around, you know, inside 115 yards and hit an unbelievable wedge shot. And I always think that that's one of the cool things about the PGA Tour is when the pressure gets the most, you have to stand up and produce and, and hit a great shot. And, you know, that's an area of his game that he works on very hard with his instructor, Sean Foley. And to stand up and 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 get a, a really good shot when he needed to with a part of his game that isn't historically the best part of his game, I thought was really important. Third win, he's still, you know, a really young player. And is this going to be a catalyst that's going to 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 help him kind of move up and and get to that next level that everybody thinks that that Cam can get to? Jumped him from outside the top 125 in the FedEx, jumped him to I think inside the top 50. So now he's got a legit chance over the next couple of weeks to try and get to uh, the tour championship, get inside that top 30. 
it's a unique time of year to where there really aren't that many tournaments left. Uh, week off this week because of the Olympics, which I think everybody's going to be excited to see what happens. But then WGC for the guys that are in that, and then the opposite field out in Tahoe and Reno and that kind of you know environment out there. A lot of guys trying to keep their card. And then Wyndham, you know, that kind of last chance tournament for, for the guys trying to keep their card. So it's always, yeah, it's, it's hard to believe that the end of the year is uh, the, the, the calendar year for the PGA tour is coming to an end. Uh, it seems like we just started, but, um, some good golf coming up. Memphis, always a good tournament and it's always good at the end of the PGA tour season. A lot of built in drama of guys trying to keep their cards, guys trying to get their cards and guys trying to move up. So as I said, this week's guest, Phil Kenyon, I think everybody knows that if you want to improve your scores and want to get better at um, the game of golf, putting is is one of the low-hanging fruit. If you, if you can become a better putter, um, you can improve your scores. And, and I think Phil has done a fantastic job in elevating himself to the top of, of the guys in the putting world. Um, he works with some of the best players in the world. He works with major champions. And um, like I said, if I've got anything that I'm trying to figure out with putting every now and again, at least a couple times a year, I'll say to Phil about a player that I'm working with. Hey, what do you think about this? Where do you, where do you, what do you like? What do you, what do you not like? And, and the thing I love most about Phil, he's always been really, really um, easy to talk to. Um, he's always got, you know, stuff to say, you know, that if you ask him a question, he will think about it. And it comes from a place of authenticity. The answer is always, you know, he's figured it out and just wants to help players get better. So sit back and enjoy Phil Kenyon. Phil Kenyon. Phil, let's get straight to it. Tell me what it takes to be a great putter because you are the, the putting guru. You work with some of the best players in the world on their putting. But when you think about putting and you think about all of the things that you see people struggle with, let's start by what you think it takes to be a great putter. And then what are some of the things that you see on a regular basis that hold people back from being a great putter? I'm still trying to work that one out, Claude. I mean, <laughs> the obvious answer is great putters get the ball in the hole. I mean, that would be the one common thing that you'd see. It's very difficult at times to, because a lot of times when we look at golf, we look at technique and we try and look at the commonalities between great putters. And I think there are very few. But what great putters do, they have, they, they've acquired skill. You know, they have the ability to start the ball on their intended line, control speed and read greens. And over the years, they've found a way for themselves to kind of marry those skills together and go out and perform with them. And that would be the, the one common theme that I, I, I see is the, the development of this skill. And then, you know, if you look at different putters, they've used a variety of different methods to become great putters. And, and I think that's the challenge within putting. There's so many different ways that you can do it. What's the right way for you? Um, so yeah, it might be a cop out, but that would, that's kind of what I, how I see it at the moment anyway. I've heard you say that successful putting requires the matching up of skills of, you, you mentioned it, green reading, start line and speed control. So which of those do you feel like players neglect and which of those do you feel that players over analyze well yeah i mean then neglect green reading and overanalyze start line so i think elite players 
I'd definitely say fall into that category more. I mean, it's always sort of player dependent, isn't it? You know, you can um, come across different players who will be different in that makeup. But if you're going to sort of generalise, I would say across the board, golfers would generally underappreciate the importance of green reading. And even, even at times, they'll link poor speed control or believe that they've got poor speed control when it's actually the green reading that's the issue, you know, picking a low line, intuitively trying to jam jam the put in and then they miss it and it's five foot pass. So if you could develop one skill and it would help a lot of the others, I do think green reading would be one of them, one of the first ones. Yeah, I think golfers, I, I remember once I was, uh, I worked at Ben Crenshaw's home course and he he said to me once that speed for him was far more important than the line. And he always said, if, if your putts always have the right speed, how far away from the hole are they ever really going to be? Do you think sometimes that, you know, I see so many players, Phil, spend so much time on putts from five feet. Believe it or not, I think most players are pretty good at putts from, you know, three to five feet. But then when they get further away from the hole, they really start to struggle because they don't, as you said, they don't really read greens that well. And then their speed control is off. But if they putt poorly, let's say they have 35 putts, 36 putts, and they have a bunch of three putts, they immediately go straight back to the to the putting green and practice five footers. And so I've always thought that as instructors, we almost teach putting backwards to where we work specifically on stroke mechanics first and then we work on touch and feel and greeting and I'm almost for for players now I'm almost the opposite I'm like listen why don't we go out and look at how you read greens look at what your speed control is and then go and look at your stroke but I think everyone is convinced that the key to putting better is 100% stroke mechanics to where maybe it's learning kind of touch and feel yeah no i i I know where you're coming from and i can kind of agree some way on that and i think that's why if you can look at putting as the acquisition of skill rather than you know the development of mechanics then you you, you're somewhat closer to to taking that approach i mean obviously if if you're developing if you've got a, a new golfer with no like prior sort of learning or habits i think very much you would approach it from that way. Sometimes with a, a developed golfer who's got particular patterns and biases and maybe established mechanics which aren't very functional, you have to, you know, if you've got poor mechanics, that could be generating poor speed control. The poor mechanics could be meaning that you your reading has to really accommodate that. You might have to look at it a little differently. But I think, yeah, when you're new to the game, you've got to look at it from a skill acquisition point of view. What are the key skills and how do we best go about learning them and you might that first lesson might not be on mechanics um but I, I also agree golfers when they put poorly the first thing that they blame is is the stroke and uh you know very often it's not and like you said they'll, they'll even then go and start working on a particular area within putting that's actually irrelevant to what they've just gone out and done you know whether it be practicing short puts when it was the mid-range stuff that was off so yeah, no, I can see where you're coming from in that, definitely. How did you, Phil, as you know, someone that works with some of the best putters in the world and stuff, how did you get into starting to work 
with putting? I mean, I know you played and you were a player, but to kind of specialize and go down the putting route, I was a golf instructor and I never, you know, went specifically to putting. How did you get your start and why did you choose putting as kind of the avenue that you wanted to go down? I don't know. I think putting chose me, really. <laughs> I don't think I ever chose putting. I mean, you'd have to go back to when I was a kid, really, because a, a really close friend of my father's was a guy called Harold Swash, who was a fairly prominent instructor and uh, designer of golf clubs. And I was around Harold from a very early age. I used to play golf with him when, when I was a kid. I used to caddy for him. And... Um, you know, he used to help him when he'd do his clinics or on certain trips. You know, he, I was, he was a good guy to be around. He was fun. And I guess what happened is I just developed a really good relationship with him. He helped me with my putting. My aspirations were to play the game. So with it, you know, with the people that he was around, I, I enjoyed being around him. Um, I'd always learned something about the game when I, whenever I was with him. Then I went to university because I valued the importance of my education. And, and then when I when I graduated, I turned pro because I wanted to play. And uh, Harold continued to help me, um, you know, through that period. But you know, I was playing low level golf, as you, and you, you know, it's pretty tough. You know, no money in it, and I'm playing like mini tour stuff. So I was trying to earn money at the same time. So Harold said, well, come and work with me, come and help me. I'll pay you to sort of, um, you know, do stuff with me. And I guess as uh, I played about five years after university and really didn't make the progress that I wanted, but I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed coaching, if I was honest. You know, at, at degree level, I did uh, sports science. So I kind of always been interested in that kind of thing. And I took a lot of lessons myself. I needed it. I wasn't very good, but um, I enjoyed being around coaches. And then when I started doing a bit of work with Harold, I thought, you know what, I could, I enjoy this. And, and is this something that I could do beyond golf? Cause I wanted or beyond playing golf because, you know, I really enjoyed the game and, and I, I wanted to stay in the game. So yeah, basically when I kind of hung up my playing boots, Harold was like, come and come and work for me. And, and then it, it really sort of developed from there. So Although I was doing a bit of teaching in other parts of the game, I joined the PGA, I was doing my PGA stuff at Hillside and um, working with the juniors there and doing some lessons with the members. Very early on, because Harold was already specialised in that area, I was sort of you know, heavily involved in putting and he was working with you know, high-level players. So that was, that was nice to be around. So that gave me an incentive to kind of develop um, that side of things. So that I owe Harold my start into you know, into putting and, and golf to, to, to a certain degree. My mum, my dad, Harold, they were very big influences in, me, influences in me getting into the game. So how much do you try and blend the art and the science of putting? Because there are people that think it's, you know, there's an art to it. And then there are people that think there's a science to it, that there are, there are ways to measure it and stuff like that. And where are you in, in kind of the art and the science in putting? It's a tough question, that, isn't it? I mean, they both have merits. I, I, there's a science to it. You can't get away from that. You know, it's physics at, at the end of the day, how much the ball breaks, you know, if the club face comes in open or closed, physics are going to dictate these outcomes. I think the 
the artistic element comes in the coaching, how you put across that information and how you can develop a player and also how you then take that information, how you go play with it, you know, how you can execute it on the golf course. So it, it's a balance, isn't it? And, and the, from a scientific point of view, how we can try and measure the player, understand what they do and, and monitor that player. There's a, there is a science to that. So it, it's a blend, isn't it? That, and it's difficult at times to get that blend right. I mean, I, I'd be guilty of being overly analytical with players and then I've been the opposite at times, you know, two hands off and, you know, not enough hands on. So there's a balance between both of those sides. The challenge for the coach is what's the right balance for the player. And, you know, I think experience a lot helps you decide that. But yeah, no, that's a, it's a good question. Um, and it's something that I'm still learning as well myself, really. So it's easy to look at great putters and like there are certain things that great putters do that are similar. But when you look at the average golfer, you know, that struggles with their putting, are there any similarities or things that you see on a regular basis that, you know, are, are kind of commonalities of players that putt poorly? Poor green reading is a common thing, isn't it, across? I think it, at every level it separates good and bad putters. Um, I think with amateur golfers, they are way less predictable in their ability to start the ball online. I would tend to see a lot more moving parts and um, a lack of ability to control the club face like you would do with an, an elite player. Yeah, a lot more moving parts, make I think, can make it harder to control the club face for start line, but also control the club face in terms of speed. So, uh, And then you could get into the specifics of what those common patterns are that you'd see. You know, but how long have we got in, in that set? <laughs> but yeah, I would say generally a lot more moving parts where players, you know, uh, better players, the point strokes are a lot more refined, a lot more consistent and a lot more stable. So, but again, you've got those three skills. It's not just about technique. It's, it's those other elements as, as well. And you, you, your average golfer can be very poor in some of those other, you know, other skills. So if we look at the things that you think that are important, green reading, start line and speed control, let's start with green reading. For, for everyone listening, what's some easy things that players can do to try and help them become a better green reader? Well, I think if you if you if you're trying to improve a skill, trying to get better at anything, you need some element of feedback. And you know, when we go and put, very often the only feedback that we get is whether the ball went in. So that's just feedback on whether you matched everything. If you're trying to isolate the the the, the skill of green reading, you need some feedback on whether what you predicted actually matched the reality of what the ball did. Otherwise, you know, it could be that you pulled that online or the pace was able to match the line, which is great. You know, you can accept that on the course. But if you're trying to isolate the skill of green reading, you need to you need some feedback specific to that. So I think one of the simple things that you can do is to map out the put. So when you're when you're on the green, you've got a put in front of you and, uh, you know, get a couple of ball markers and basically just ask yourself, well, where would the ball roll over in order for it to go in? So it could be two thirds of the way along the putt, you place a ball marker where you see the ball is going to roll over. 
then ask yourself, where would I need to start the ball in order for it to roll through that point? And you might place another ball marker on a start line a couple of feet in front of the ball. And as you look that through those points, you're going to start to kind of um, build a picture of the curve of the putt. So you're right. mapping out what you see. And then the next sort of challenge is then can you hit that line? So you step in, hit the putt, and you'll obviously then see what the ball does relative to what you predicted. And that would be the, the basis of you know, starting to get some feedback on, on green reading. And you do that across different puts. So you find you know downhill left to right on a, what feels a shallow slope, uphill right to left on what would feel a steeper slope. And just to experience the puts, you know, map it out, hit the putt, what did it do relative to, to what, you're, what you saw? And that will give you feedback as to your break prediction, how accurate it is. But it would also give you feedback on your ability to start the ball on, the, on that line as well. So I think that's a very simple but very effective exercise. Do you think that a lot of players, uh, and we spoke about this earlier, focus on the shorter putts as opposed to putts that, going to have break and stuff because I think a lot of players struggle with reading greens and struggle with speed control because it's just something that they never really spend any time on you know it's that thing that you hear players do oh I'll hit a couple of long putts just to get the speed of the green on the putting green but you know they might hit the average 15 handicapper probably isn't hitting any putts on the putting green of any length they're going to go and practice the short ones and then go out on the golf course and if they don't hit it to five feet on the first hole they're going to have a 25 30 footer that's downhill uphill that has some break and they haven't practiced any of that well i think from like five to 15 feet is about controlling your speed to match a line and then outside of 15 feet really is the speed is about lagging it close enough to to not miss the next one so there's two different types of practice essentially there. I mean, I, I, I think the average golfer that I come across typically says, oh, I don't make enough mid-range, but I'm pretty good at holing out. And the reality is very different. You know, the, the holing out is crap and you make enough mid-range. So I think you've got, you've got to spend, make sure you spend enough time. I mean, a lot of your practice time should be five to 15 feet. That should be the majority of your practice time. Um, and then you've got obviously practicing start line within that, speed control within that, and green reading within that. As you get you know, to 10 to 15 foot, there's going to be a lot more break and, and the importance of the read becomes a little bit more prominent. When you're five foot on, on shallower breaks, it's not going to be as much emphasis on read, but more emphasis on, on start line. So that, that they'd be the areas that I would kind of primarily focus on, five to fifteen feet, and then and then outside of that, it, it literally is like putting. Is there a trait that you've seen in you know a guy like Jordan Spieth who has just phenomenal speed control in the amount of long putts that he makes, um, in the amount of long putts that he doesn't make that burn the edge. Where do you think for a guy like Jordan that comes from? And and is it something that you think that you can, a skill that you can teach and, and, and learn? Or is the feel that someone like Jordan Spieth have, is it just innate and he just has a knack for it? Well, no, it's, nothing's innate. I mean, the only instincts you have are kind of like for 
you know, your basic instincts that you're born with, you know, maternal instincts, you know, food, water, those things, everything else he's learned, you know, so he's, he's learned, you know, he's become a, a good cutter because he's learned that, you know, he's obviously learned that at a very early age and a lot of that learning would be intuitive, but yeah, you know, he's learned that and anyone can learn it. It's about, it's about how you go about trying to acquire those skills. Some people would go about it more effectively than others. I mean, Jordan's had a great coach from an early age. So a lot of the stuff that Cam does is based around principles of skill acquisition. You know, you talk about science and the artistic side and the scientific side. Well, Cam's got an artistic side to him, you know, a lot of games, stuff like that, but there's a lot of it's based on good scientific principles. So yeah, Jordan's acquired that. That is an innate talent. He's worked really hard to become, you know, great at what he does. Now, I see some common things with great, with players, I think, that have great speed control in terms of their technique, and Jordan would demonstrate it. But I see a lot of great players who have got great touch is they create the energy on the backswing, not the downswing. So, like, you know, if you go and look at Ben Crenshaw, you go and look at, you know, Brad Faxon, you go and look at Luke Donnell, you go and look at Jordan. They're not short, not short to long strokes. They're not slow to quick. They have a lot of energy, load the club on, on the backswing, and then they let the club do the work. So there'll be very little acceleration in and around impact with those kind of strokes. So for me, it's easier to control speed if there's very little change in acceleration. So there's sort of some technical things I see with players with good speed, but you, you still have to then acquire touch with any technique and that's how you go about practicing it. And that is definitely a skill in itself. And you can do that if you practice appropriately. And that's what, what, what Jordan's done. I think one of the things that I find really unique about putting is, as you, you mentioned, out of all of the great putters, the majority of them do things very, very differently. You know, they use different types of putters. They use different types of grips. They use different types of stance. And I think that one of the things that my dad always said that great putters, he thinks they all look comfortable in their setup. You know, if you look at Ben Crenshaw, you know, Ben looks like he was almost born with a putter in his hands, the way he kind of addresses the putt. And you can you can almost tell when someone's a bad putter because the setup just looks horrendous. It doesn't look natural. It looks incredibly manufactured. How much of the way that you set up to a ball can influence all of the things that you're trying to do when, when you're trying to work on putting? Setup could influence everything. I don't think it determines everything. So, I mean, you could have two guys who set up identical that could move the putter in very different ways. But if you change their setup, it will influence what they do. So for me, when, I, when I'm working with a player and I see a particular issue that I'd want to maybe improve, then one of the first things I would do is look at, at how they set up. Because if you can influence their stroke or their pattern by how they set up, then you don't have to worry about the stroke. They can just free flow it. So, yeah, I mean, setup is massively important. I don't think there's any ideal setup for everyone. Or for you know for everyone as a group, there's an ideal setup for sub for each person, and you've got to try and work that out. You, you know, Claude, we talk enough at, at events. You go on the putting green at PJ Tour event, and everyone the different setups that you see and different strokes. And I think that is the 
that's the unique part of putting is is I think there's so many different ways to do it because it's a simple bill really, isn't it? You've only got to move the putter short distance, control the face, hit it out in the middle. You're not trying to generate a ton of speed with it. You know, you're not trying to control the club face at 120 miles an hour. So as a consequence, it's it's more of a fine motor skill. And as and then as a consequence, there's a variety of different ways that you can do it, which makes it hard to coach it. I I think if you're trying to do it in a way where you're trying to improve the player, okay, not just teach a method that you know you could teach a hundred different people. You're trying to really look at what the player does and make them a better version of themselves, make them more functional. And I think it's a harder way to teach, but ultimately, I think it it would be a more rewarding way to teach. But and certainly for that player, you know, you've got more chance of improving that player. So let's go through a couple of your students. You've been, I think, one of the the one of the things that I think you've really, really, I mean, player, I think you've really helped is a player like Justin Rose to where Justin has always been, in my opinion, one of the elite ball strikers on, on the tour, regardless of where he played. And, you know, Justin, you know, in his earlier career by his own admission was not a great putter. And one of the things that I noticed about Justin is when you guys started to work, he went from being a putter that wasn't great to being a putter that was just kind of average. He wasn't bad anymore. It wasn't great, but he was just average. And as soon as a guy like Justin Rose just became average, everybody started going, oh, what a great ball striker he is. Look at all these tournaments he's winning. <laughs> Where He was always a great ball striker. What was the process and, and, and how was, how have you gone about, you know, helping Justin and, and what are some of the changes that you've made in his stroke? Lots of little things that add up, I'd say. I mean, I, I first started working with Justin in 2016 and it was interesting because obviously, you know, Justin works with Sean and Sean sent me an email, which and Mark Brody, at, at the time, they basically said, what does getting to world number one look like? So Mark had put together these stats as to where, Justin needed to improve. And one of the things that came up with was putting, and in particular in short range putting, where I think they said like they needed to gain something like 0.3 from inside of like six feet or something like that, or seven feet. I forget the exact numbers. And needed to improve like 0.4 overall, something like that. So that was one of the things that he targeted in order to get to world number one. And that, this is in 2016. So Justin realised, you know, that he wanted to improve his putting and, and he had goals that he was working hard to try and, you know, achieve. And I, th- I think with Justin, it was a case of like, I gave him an opinion on some things that he needed to do technically. I, I gave him a, an opinion on some things that he needed to do in terms of to change his practice habits. Um, I gave him an opinion about how he could go about some of his green processes but Justin's always been very central in that. You know, he's a great student to work with because he'll drive a lot of the, the lesson. You know, he's great with his feedback. He's great with saying, well, this is what I feel I need to do. And so you kind of have a lot of times more of a kind of mirror for him at times. So, like, it's difficult to pinpoint specific things. And I really don't feel I've done a great deal. You know, he's done most of it. Um, I've just kind of helped him along the way with certain things and give him clarity on certain things because – when he's got real clarity, he's he's good at what he does. He's got great pro perception awareness, and he's he's world number one golfer. He's 
been at the at the pinnacle of the sport. Um, so I kind of guided him, and, and, and I think a big thing for Justin was we're starting to hold putts and win tournaments, holding putts and perform, and the confidence grew from that. And then he, there was definitely an old previously there was a very negative narrative around his putting, even people around him, you know, a, a negative narrative within himself, and that changed. There was a certain point in time where that changed and I think that had a profound impact on, on what he was doing moving forward. So I think he, he finished like second inside top 10 a couple of years ago. You know, he went to top 20 strokes gained um, over a course of a season. And I, I chatted with Mark Brody about it because there was like a significant jump and you can do that with putting. If you look at people that really make a big jump, you know, in terms of like strokes gained over a course of the season, it's difficult to do with the driver, you know, to be able to hit it that much further and that more, much more accurate. But with putting, you can do it, you know, but it's about getting the, all the things in place to allow you to do that good plan, work hard, confidence, but you can make those big leaps forward. You can also take those big leaps back, you know. I, I think we've seen it recently, Jason Day, you know, he would always be at the top of the putting stats and then, you know, big leap back sort of last year and, and, and finish sort of well down the stats where you, you tend not to see that as much with great drivers of the ball, you know, season in, season out, they're generally doing the same thing. So with Rosie, accumulation of a, a few different things, uh, him very much taking ownership in it, uh, confidence, belief, change of narrative, and uh, yeah, I mean, for me, I think he's a great putter. I love what, when I go and work with him, it's like, it's like watching a stripe show. I mean, you're used to seeing stripe shows on the range. You know, when I watch him put, it's like, how good's this guy, you know? Uh, doesn't always translate to putting brilliantly on the golf course, but he, he puts things together really, really well. You've uh, done some great work with Gary Woodland. One of the knocks against Gary was, you know, obviously the length that he's got and the ball striking didn't match kind of the putting. What are some of the things that you've done for, for someone like Gary? And, you know, what are the challenges where you're working with a player that, you know, he's known so much, Gary, for distance and power? And how do you balance that? And, and what are some of the changes you guys have, have, have made? Well... I mean, it's interesting you, you, you mentioned like Gary after talking about Rose in the complete different ends of the spectrum. Complete. You, know, you talk about science and art. Like, I mean, Justin's very much more of a scientific approach himself, you know, and um, systematic and, you know, and then uh, Gary's very different to that, very much like a field player, very simple in his approach to stuff. So, I mean, same thing, like, you know, tried to clean up some aspects of his technique. There's a lot of shaft lean in there, and he'd struggled to sort of start the ball on lean, uh, on line. And I don't know if that's sort of, you know, he's got a very dynamic, powerful golf swing with a lot of lag. So um, you often see these things sort of run through the, the rest of the player's game. But then also, I, I didn't think Gary practiced particularly well, and he ignored a lot of the other skills like green reading, speed control, and I remember early on, actually, when at the first year that I started to work with Gary, we made a lot of progress with his technique and he was a lot better putter. And then I think it was Beth Page Black 
when Brooks won the PGA, Gary finished top 10 and put it really poorly. And I remember at the start of the week, I was thinking, this is the best I've seen him technically look. And I'd really not done much about how he practiced. And he put it poorly. And we had a chat the following week. And I was like, listen, Gary, technically you're in a good place, but we need to look at some other skills here because you can't go out and put that poorly with that technique. There's got to be a reason why. So we actually arranged to meet a couple of days earlier before Pebble Beach. And we spent two days just working on his green reading, um, that alone. And it was a great story because, like, he, you know, he, he got a lot of confidence, a new process from that. And then that week, he went and obviously won the US Open, um, which was massively, like, rewarding for, for both of us. I think, you know, we kind of targeted that to try and improve it, put the work in, and then, you know, he was able to deliver it and, and, and win a major. So, yeah. Two very different approaches. You're kind of working on the same things, trying to develop those three different skills, but in a slightly different approach. I've noticed, you know, in walk, you know, in all the tournaments that I've, you know, throughout my tour career when I've been out, do you think there's any reason why it seems like players make more six to ten footers for par than they do for Murdy? Yeah, I mean it's isn't it that it's a well-known stat that at any distance a par put as a higher I don't know really I, I really struggle to put my finger on that I mean it's theorized that par puts very often could be the comeback put so you've always got a read off it or whether that's the you know there's a psychological concept where you kind of fight more to avoid failure or you know the downside of missing that put the upside of making a birdie I really don't know, to be honest. Yeah, I'll, I'll bypass that question. When we say, and, and, and everybody does it, they do it a lot on TV, he's not a great putter, but he's a streaky putter. When you hear that, what, is, what does that make you think about a player's potential? Or, or does it make you think, well, they're doing some things good and they're not doing other things? Because we hear that a lot, right? I mean, not a great putter, but he's streaky. And when he putts good... He, he performs well. And how do you tap in and go from that streaky putter to a more consistent putter? Well, when I hear that, I often think, oh, that, you know, new potential new client. So it's always, it's always good to hear. You've got, obviously, you've got variance in your performance. And I, I think a lot of players are looking for consistency, that they're all capable of playing well any given week. They're capable of putting well on any given week but they're looking for higher levels of consistency to do that week in, week out. So, you know, it's about trying to work out what breaks down and why it breaks down. Um, and, and that week when it's good, what happens on that week when it's good? And, you know, fundamentally, you know, players will have certain biases which they're able to manage in certain situations and not in others. So, the first thing is to give a player an understanding of those biases, what they actually do. And, you know, no one's perfect. It's not like you're trying to work towards this sort of perfect scenario, but the first thing is understand what you do. And then you have half a chance of managing it or half a chance of, of making things work in a certain you know scenario. And then you can start to refine it to make it more functional. Um, so that'd be the first step, you know, and that consistency comes from that ultimately, not just higher levels of performance, but ultimately 
you know, more consistency. Your better players are more consistent by by virtue of they do things better. And your best putters also have a smaller range in their performances because they do stuff better. So consistency comes by working on the right things, which is going to elevate your performance at the same time. Why do great putters love fast greens? And why does the average putter struggle so much on fast greens? Well, I mean, it's interesting. On tour, the faster the green, the better the performance on average. So, you know, tour players put better on faster greens. Now, whether that's because the surfaces are generally better, um, you know, that could be a factor. There's a challenge on faster greens, and that's break, green reading. There's more of an emphasis on green reading. There's more, more of an emphasis on speed control. You're a little bit out with your speed control. The ball's going to, you know, roll up that much further by or it's going to be shorter. You know, there's a lot more break at times. So, you know, on any given put, you're going to have a bigger range in terms of... So it just basically stresses all the skills which you've got to command. Um, so you get a good good putter on, on, on faster greens. He's more capable in those scenarios than a, than a bad putter. Um, so simple as really in that, in that respect. Yeah, because you hear a lot of times putters... Will say, you know, on really, really fast greens, they like it because it takes a lot of the speed control out of it. They just feel like, okay, if I start it online and the greens are really good and the greens are really fast, if I start this online, it's going to get to the hole. I don't feel like I have to manufacture it or do that. And and you know, one of the the big things, you know, I heard at the Open Championship is, you know, you go from the U.S. to where you're playing on the PJ Tour all the time, and then you go to a, an Open Championship venue to where, obviously, they can't get the greens as fast as they get them in the U.S. And, you know, you hear a lot of good players say, man, you know, I struggle when the greens are are slow and because they feel like they have to manufacture the hit. Yeah. Um, yeah, 100%. And oh. Also, what I would say there is the players have certain styles and how they generate speed. And some players could can struggle in how they adapt to faster greens and some players can struggle in how they adapt to slower greens. And I was talking about, you know, guys who load the club up on the backswing. But I, I would generally say as a rule of thumb, people that have real slow, short strokes over accelerate, when they get on slower greens, they really struggle to generate speed because they don't have the energy in, in the backswing. They're really trying to make up on the downswing. So there are scenarios for horses, for courses, with all parts of the game, and you get that with putting. You, you often get the opposite. Some people that would struggle going to quicker greens because of what they do. And I guess it's helping that player understand the pattern so that when they go to different courses, they know how they that they need to adapt. Um, I think... When I mean, this is an interesting thing. I mean, obviously, you spend a lot of time on the PGA Tour. When you when you're on the PGA Tour, it's like every green speed is the same week on week, isn't it? You know, generally, it's like eleven and a half stimp every week. So you're kind of used to something. Then you come over, you play the British Open, and and, and it's sorry, the Open, and they're like nine stimp. That's a big difference, isn't it? So it's how then do you adapt? And I think as an international player when you're playing different green speeds all the time, it's actually a little bit easier for you to adapt because you're practicing adapting every week. Um, so you, as a player, 
if you're facing that scenario in practice, in your preparation, you should be looking at adaptability. How do I, how do I practice in a manner where I'm, I'm adapting? Because it's that, that skill that's going to help you control, you know, or ad- adapt out on a, on, on a different golf course on any, 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 or any given week. One of the things that I see is it's probably more so in the U.S. than in other parts of the world, but a lot of juniors now grow up playing on really good golf courses. They play on private golf courses. They play on golf courses that have really, really good greens, really, really fast greens. And I hear constantly from junior golfers that say to me, you know, I really putted poorly in this tournament. And I said, well, what happened? Well, the greens were just super slow. And they were way slower than I'm used to. So when you're going to a tournament as a player and you know you're going to be going to a course fill to where the green speeds are going to be slower than what you're used to, what are some things that you can do to try in your practice and in your preparation to try and adapt to playing on much slower greens? Yeah, so kind of that's what I was kind of alluding to uh, in your practice you practice in a way where you're training adaptability. So, I mean, any movement starts with intention. You know, when you step in, what's your intention to hit hit the putt? Now, a lot of times that's subconscious. You see a speed, you know, and if you're playing 11 stimp all the time, you're going to see that 11 stimp speed, aren't you? And then you step in and you react to that intention. Well, it's a very simple exercise that you could do, but you you, you put a fake hole on the ground and you try and roll the ball so it stops on the fake hole. Then on the next put, you try and roll the ball so it rolls a foot past through the fake hole. Then on the next put, you say, right, I'm going to roll it three foot past. So on each put, you have a different intention, and then you're trying to match that intention. And though you're training your ability to, 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 to match intention, you're training your ability to adapt from put to put. And if you get really good at that, then when you're on a golf course and you're faced with a scenario where you've got slower or quicker greens, it's a case of changing your intention and then reacting to that intention. So you're going to see a firmer speed at the hole. You're going to see a softer speed at the hole, depending on you know those greens that you face. So, And that's skill acquisition. That's training skill, touch and feel. And at times, I don't think you know we do enough of that. You know, we get so sort of blocked in at times to like block practice. There's not enough of that other stuff going on. So that would be a very simple way that you could try and accommodate and train, you know, adaptability. Do you think most average golfers, non, non-tour players, people, you know, the majority of golfers, do you think most of the three putts come from poor stroke mechanics or do you think the three putts come from poor green reading and poor, you know, speed control? Ooh. It's a combination of both, isn't it? Of all of them, I think, you know, it comes from poor proximity, so they don't get the ball close enough first attempt, which could be a combination of a little bit off with the speed. You know, they start it left and they've underread it. And then all of a sudden it's now eight foot past under the hole. I think ultimately it can vary from player to player. That's what I will see is when you, when you start working with a player, you'll see certain patterns. So some players, it could be more down to green reading. Other players, it could be more down to speed control or, or start line. And, and, but until you start to work with that player, it's hard to work out, you know, what, what's the driver, what's the main bias. Um, but you only need to be a little bit out in one of those areas and it's a complete mess. 
um, or that that far out that they match up and, and it's success. And that, that's the sort of brain damaging thing about putting. Um, how big are you on routines? Because one of the things that I think um, that I see good putters do is they tend to kind of have a specific type of routine. And one thing that poor putters that you see, they they have no routine, the routine changes and stuff. How important is creating for players a kind of structure in what they do day in and day out when they're actually hitting putts? Yeah, no, I think that's massive. Um, I'm big into that aspect, you know, the structure, whether it be the routines about how they go and practice, how they structure their practice to, to the routine that they take out onto the golf course. And, you know, players will tweak their routines. They don't have the same routine all the time. They could tweak it to help them on specific areas. And, and, and often when, when they're sort of more routine aware through making a little bit of a tweak, I think that's a good thing because it actually gets them into that process of the routine rather than thinking too much about other stuff. So yeah, I mean, the main thing about a routine should be to get you mentally ready to hit the shot more than anything. So you can sometimes have some variance in the physical aspect of the routine. Like you might have one practice stroke, you might have two. But the main thing is to getting yourself mentally ready to execute the shot in, in a free state. That would be the main thing. You know, I talked, my dad was a very good putter and I talked to him once when I was growing up and I said, you know, what do you think about when you're putting? And he was like, I don't understand the question. He's like, I, I just think about making it. And he's like, you know, there's two outcomes. I'm either going to make it or I'm not from five feet to 50 feet. And so what you were saying about intent, his intent is all about the positive. I see a lot of players, Phil, when they go out and they struggle with putting, it looks like they're doing everything they can possibly do to just try and not miss putts. It doesn't look like there's any sort of focus into doing anything from an intent standpoint on trying to make putts. Um, how do you go about working with players and getting them to shift that mindset of, okay, you've got a 25 footer. And because when players have great putting days, you know, we always hear the cliches, the hole looks super big. The line looks very easy. And you just feel like you can make them all. And then you have those days where you just feel like you can't make anything. And how do you make that flip from being a super, super defensive putter to being a little bit more aggressive and trying to make putts as opposed to try and not miss them? I just prefer them to a psychologist at that point. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, it's... Listen, the game itself and how how like emotionally sort of attached to it when you're out performing, the game takes you down these um, rabbit holes, doesn't, you know, I guess it's being aware of changes in your state of mind and then, and then being able to just go back to you, what you know is your routine, what you need to focus on. And, um, but I think um, what I do find is that players don't practice that enough in, in practice. So, they'll, you know, often get dragged into sort of mechanics or whatever it is on practice and they don't practice in the way that they want to perform so that when they go out on the golf course, they're not as robust in the routines that they have trying to get into that right state. 
So I would say, you know, really nail down your routines. You've got to really um, appreciate what kind of state of mind you're trying to perform in and then practice with that. Now, if you practice with it, you're going to be able to access it more easily on the course. You're going to practice with it. You're going to be able to more easily recognize when you're out of that state, you know, and then get back in it. So I think like a big part of being better on the golf course is performance practice. So, you know, doing some drills, doing some exercises, it's one ball only. There's an element of competition to it. There's an outcome that you're going to be judged on. During that performance, you're going through your routine. You know, you're going to practice these elements you've identified and practice getting better at them. When you've got that pressure put and you start thinking about the outcome, you're going to be able to register that change in state a little bit easier on the practice ground and then and then practice, you know, being better at it. All that's going to transfer to the golf course when you go out. But the challenge of golf is such a mental challenge. You know, you, you do get sucked down into those states, don't you? It's just being able to recognise it and having, you know, that, that foundation in practice to be able to then more easily access what you want to do. So that, that would be my take on it. Can you be a great putter, Phil, with a bad stroke? Yeah. What do you determine a bad stroke? Well, I think everybody, like you said, I think everybody, when they look at putting, they're trying to be so perfect with kind of the the mechanics and the movement. And, you know, my dad my dad said when he played the tour, the, the few years that he played the tour, he was not a good putter. And he said it was one of the things that he felt held him back. And so he said that, you know, in the early 70s, he just said, listen, I'm just going to make myself a good putter with a, I don't want to change my stroke, but I'm just going to grind it out. And so his stroke really hasn't changed. Anytime we try and measure his stroke, what he would do from a fundamental standpoint wouldn't be textbook, but it's consistent. So I guess my point is, you know, I think putters that putt poorly think that they have to be perfect. And there are great putters when you break down what their stroke does. It isn't as perfect as everyone thinks, but it's very, very repetitive. Yeah. I mean, first of all, like, what's that saying? Like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So what someone might determine is a good looking stroke. Someone else might, might not like the look of. So there's, Let's not be get confused from aesthetics to mechanics. You know, you know, function versus style. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and then, and then, so there's a variety of different things, that, different ways you can grip it, different ways you can move it. But you've got to be able to start your ball online. So, for me, the definition of a good stroke is one that starts the ball online at the correct speed. You know, the definition of a bad stroke is one that doesn't or can't do it consistently. Um, and I've seen strokes that look good aesthetically that can't do it. And I've seen strokes that don't look conventional, but are very good at what they do. And I think that's the challenge as a coach is being able to determine, you know, what's an idiosyncrasy of the player and what's a fault, you know, and then and work at addressing the fault and leave what might look a bit goofy alone because it's not affecting the, the function. So, yeah, I mean... It comes back to those three skills, regardless of what it looks like, what you do. If you can start online, control your speed, read a green, then you're cashing checks at the end of the day. <laughs> um, the dreaded yip world. In the full swing world, we have to deal with the dreaded shank. Um, 
word you in the putting world have to deal with the dreaded yips word when you see a putter that really has the full-blown yips regardless of at what level they're at what do you in your experience phil what do you think contributes to that how much of it is physical how much of is it mental where does it where does that come from because i think everybody goes through those phases in their their golfing life and their career where they just they they feel like they can't make it from two feet i i refer them to that same psychologist <laughs> i mean the, the, the yips is I, I i mean i i don't know what the root cause of a yip is Okay, I mean, generally what I have to deal with are symptoms. I try and manage symptoms. Um, there's cleverer people than, than, than I that will um, argue over what are the root cause uh, of a yip is. You know, does it, is it psychological? Is it, you know, is it a cognitive element to it? Um, or is there a physiological or is there a technical element? I, and I don't know, but, you know, I, I do, I think very much when you're working with a player who, who has that condition, you're attacking it from all angles, really. There's a generally a psychological element to it. There's, I do see a lot of technical influences. So let's say, for example, a player who has to really, you know, over-control the club face through impact. I won't say manipulate, but the level of coordination required to control the club face is very high. And then, Obviously, when you're at competition, you're very, um, you know, you're very much reliant on your your hand-eye coordination, and if your nervous system is a very different place, how easy is it for you to control that hand-eye coordination? Then does it break down? You know, I, I think things like that happen, so you can address things technically to take some stress off the hand-eye coordination, so it's a bit more robust when you're on a golf course and your nervous system is in a different place. Now, whether that's, you know, I see like rotation yips, I see acceleration yips where people are trying to make up speed, you know, close to impact. You improve those aspects, how they improve or how they generate speed or how they control face, and you can actually get rid of the yip. Um, often you've got to look at more of a mental thing. So from a coach, there is a little bit of trial and error from my part as to what what works, you know, and you'll, you'll chuck a few things at it to try and work through and find a solution for the player. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting topic, but there's plenty of players who have overcome it over the years, and I, I could reel off a few guys. Um, but you've got to be patient, and I think there's an element of trial and error to find try and find the right solution for you but you're talking, you know, you've got to delve into all of those areas, I think. So players, um, you know, in the professional game that you don't work with, whose putting strokes you really like, what is it that you like about them? And what can people learn from what they do? Like who, when you look at putting strokes, you know, guys that you don't work with, I mean, who are the ones that you go, man, I love that. And what is it that you love? I, I like watching Xander put, um, and one because he's a good putter. Where he uses a line on the ball, and I'm not, which I'm not saying is everyone should do, but when you see him put, he rolls a ball incredibly well, and I find that mesmerising just watching that ball roll. And I love the way he goes about about his practice. You know, it's very structured, systematic, and uh, he's got a very simple technique. Not very. 
not many moving parts. So for me, I think he's got a very predictable launch. Looks like he can control his speed. So Xander would be one that I think, you know, great putter. I was a little surprised when he switched to arm lock because um, I thought, you know, he's you know great putter. Um, but I know he's moved back um, to conventional. So he, he, he would be one. Um, I've always enjoyed watching Jason Day um, just because of the intensity in which he practices and the intensity of his routine. And, that, you know, for anyone who's, you know, any aspiring golfers out there watching this, if you go next time you're at a PGA Tour event, watch Jason Day practice. In particular, pay, pay attention to his routine and how he uses his eyes. So that, that would be someone. Um, Luke Donald, you know, when, you know, when I've had access to watch Luke Donald from afar, um, you know, I love watching him put, I think it's a very simple stroke. And again, you know, very structured and intense about how he goes and practices. And, and Brad, I mean, I've never not really spent much time around Brad, but I like watching his stroke when I see him do stuff because there's a real flow to it. Um, and I think it, he, it looks very athletic and flowing. If you compare it to say someone like Xander, there's a little bit more flow to it. But I, you know, I could, I like watching guys hit putts. To be honest, I could go through a load of different strokes, um, and they all have, bring something slightly different to it. You know, like um, JT Poston, he's got a very unusual stroke, and I watch him on the putting green, and you think, well, how does he make it work? But you know, he can put. So there's there's different strokes, different folks, and. Um, they all do something that kind of um, helps them get the ball in the hole at some point. A lot of people look at Ricky Fowler's stroke on the PJ Tour and think it's one of you know the most enviable. Everybody likes what he does. When you look at Ricky Putt, what do you think that he does well, and what do you think you know are some things you could learn from what he does? So Ricky tends to use his uh, forearms and wrists. But what I think he does really well is that there's a symmetry to that movement. So he's not moving sort of his torso too much. But, you know, like what often what you see, people use their wrists and arms on the backswing, then they start using their torso, then that can cause issues. So Ricky kind of has a nice symmetry in his, his you know, lower arm movement, and there's a real flow to it. So you mentioned about loading the backswing, the, the speed and length of the stroke, you know, that he loads that up and there's a real flow and rhythm to it. So the ball's running at the hole uh, and symmetry. And, you know, I would imagine Ricky's fairly confident with the putter. I know he's a little bit maybe of late, but, you know, historically as well, if you've been a good putter, then it's easy to step up and put with confidence. But there'd be two technical things that I like about his stroke, the symmetry and, and the flow to it. One of the things I think that gets overlooked with Ricky is when Ricky misses putts, he never blames his stroke. You never see Ricky miss a 15-footer for birdie, go over to the bag and be messing around and making a bunch of practice strokes. He just gives his caddy, Joe Scarver, the putter, or he'll kind of, and Brad Faxon used to do that. When Brad missed one, he would kind of miss it and kind of go, wow. Because it was like he was more surprised in missing it than he would have been. And I, and I think that when you touched on that, when players are good putters, it's, it's a calling card. They will tell you, hey, listen, I'm a good putter. And then if you go out and you watch it, I always wonder how much of that is, because I think 
Tiger was such a great putter, but in talking to him, you know, when I was around him at, a, at an early age, you know, in that kind of 2000 to 2000, you know, the era where he was, you know, doing crazy stuff, I asked him what he was thinking about when he was putting and he would say, I think about making it a lot. I tell myself I need to make it a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm really focused on, and everything was about the outcome. And like you said, the intent. And I think it's, we see players that just can't get into that mindset. Well, yeah, I mean, and you have to from a a performance level, don't you? And I think sometimes that's a double-edged sword about a player who's maybe trying to become a better putter and they work on a few things technically or try and improve things and they don't, they aren't able to switch onto that kind of mindset when they go onto the course. Because ultimately that's how you've got to play golf with that intent, that focus and you know, more of an external kind of attentional focus, I think. And I, I would say like similar thing with, you know, Matt Fitzpatrick, who I work with, who's I think one of the best putters out there. Matt's got real confidence in, 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 um, in what, in what he does. I mean, I've just thought back to a text that he sent me. He had a great putting day, um, at a recent event. And he sent me a text saying, I'm the best putter in the world. You know, which, you know, and he's thinking that he's thinking that, um, and, you know, with Matt, like if he misses a put, he'd very rarely be looking to blame himself. It's, you know, like you said with Brad and those others, they, they move on, isn't it? And I think, when you're super confident about what you're doing, it's easy to move on. When you're not confident and you don't have that belief and you hit a bad shot, it's like another negative that's reinforcing the you know, reinforcing that you're you're a bad putter. And it's that narrative, you've got that negative narrative then, isn't it? You've got to switch that narrative. And that's the hard thing. How do you do that? I mean, ultimately, you've got to start making putts to change that narrative. Um, so you've got to find that formula. But when you find the formula and you're making puts and you get the right narrative going, that's where you can really make a difference. And I think, you know, people can turn themselves into great putters when they start to get that, that you know, a nice mix of that. You know, one of the things I think when Mark Brody came out uh, with all of the strokes gained and all of that information, there was this big push to say that ball striking was way more important than putting. But every single week, you, you do a great job of this on social media, every single week, the guys that win the, the tournaments tend to be the guys that putted. They're, they're pretty good. It's not like you're winning golf tournaments on the PJ Tour and finishing dead last in strokes game putting. You can dress stats up however you want, can't you? If you torture them long enough, they'll admit to anything. So, you know, there's that... Mark obviously came out with that stat, but Mark also came out with a stat that the the average winner on the PJ Tour putting contributes to 35% of their strokes gained, which is one of the biggest contributors. So, yeah, if you want to be average, it's going to contribute less. But if you want to win, compete at the highest level, then you've got to put well. 35% is a fair chunk of your performance, isn't it? So... And you see it every week, you know, I mean, that there are instances where people will win with, you know, um, an average putting performance is very, very rare, but generally they're the, you know, the top end of ball strikers. But for the most part, the guy who's winning tournaments is, is putting pretty well that week. 
I remember talking, it was interesting. I was talking to Freddie Jacobson once and Freddie was a great putter and not the best ball striker. And I asked him, if you could do it over again, would you take the game that you've got and be a great pure putter or be a better ball striker and give up some of your putting? And and I found it interesting that he said, listen, I'd, I'd probably give up a little bit of my putting to become a better ball striker. And I'm thinking... There are guys that would give up all of their ball striking to be as good a putter as he is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a trade-off, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, all parts of the game are important, you know. Um, you've got to be able to drive it well, your approach play is important. And your and putting's important. Players have a, a, a mix, don't they? You know, not everyone's equal in every department. There's a mix. I guess what you have to do is work out how you try and improve your weaknesses at the same time as maintaining your strengths. You know, if you look at Colin Morikawa, like I saw a stat the other day where he's the difference between number one in approach and number two in approach. It So he's obviously number one, Paul Casey was number two. That gap is bigger than the gap between Paul Casey and 50th in approach. That's how far ahead he is in approach. And, you know, I don't think putting is maybe one of his strengths statistically. If you look at it, he's obviously got a very clear, you know, strength in his iron play. So for Colin, it's about trying to improve his putting over time whilst maintaining his iron play. You know, obviously, if he just completely focuses on trying to get better with a putter, that iron play could drop off and then he's in a worse situation. So it's about understanding your mix and then trying to find the best way to improve your game as a whole. And some guys are going to be better putters, some guys are going to be worse, some guys better ball ball strikers, whatever. But at the end of the day, if you're winning, then you've got the right mix, however way you do it. So in these crazy times, I know you're doing some stuff online. Um, Talk to us about some of the stuff that you're doing and how people can kind of get in contact with you. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously it's been a strange year or strange two years now. And it was kind of this time last year, really, when, you know, I, I came back from from the US and I was at home in the UK. We were locked down. And I'd always had this idea of trying to sort of put together a, like an online platform for the you know recreational golfer or whatever level of golfer that they could access remotely. So with Mike, who works for me and, and a couple of uh, other guys um, in a web team, we put together a, um, a putting academy, Phil Kenyon um, putting academy, which is basically an online platform that anyone can subscribe to. And there's over like, I think there's about 350 videos in there. It's based around um, a kind of putting elements framework, we call it, which is seven basic elements, which I believe you need to master in order to become a great putter. So it's sort of, you've got the seven elements that you can work through. We also offer a 12-week program. So within your one-year membership, you can work through a 12-week program. You go through a series of tests, a questionnaire, and then basically we'll direct what we feel will be the most meaningful videos for you in a scheduled sort of program that you can work through. So yeah, I mean, I've enjoyed it. It's been a big project. It's kept me busy whilst not traveling. Um, but you know, it's been quite rewarding. Um, we've got a community in there and it's nice to sort of interact with golfers across the world who are, you know, 
going through the program, trying to become better putters. Fantastic. Last two questions. Got to get your opinion on them. They're going to outlaw green reading books next year on the PGA Tour. What's your thought on that? I just think the governing bodies see putting as like an easy thing to target and change the rules so that they look like they're being proactive. So they, you know, they talk about arm lock, they change. Yeah, and the other question was, where's your, where's your stance on arm lock? Yeah. So, I mean, why, why, why would you ban the long putter? So there's like, you know, there's, there's thousands of amateurs out there who have the yips who need the, you know, need the long putter just to go out and enjoy the game. It's pathetic. You know, let people use whatever tools that they want if they want to go out and enjoy the game. Consider it at a professional level if you want, okay, and, and leave it up to the tour. But as a rule of golf, I think it's stupid. Green books, you know, again, I don't, th- I don't see it as a root of a problem from a from a, a slow play point of view. I don't see it necessarily ruining the game. I see how far the ball is going ruining the game. Um, you know, in, in 10 years' time, we're not going to be able to play the likes of Sunningdale because we've become obsolete. St Andrews shortly are becoming obsolete. Um, does having a green map make that course obsolete? Does it allow someone to go and enjoy the game because they read a put a bit better? Yeah, it does. But for, for me, so you, you don't need to ban green maps. If they're made available, people want to choose to use them. You might want to do it at a professional level if you want to say, well, we want to make it more of an even ground for whatever it is. But as a rule of golf, I don't think they need to be doing that. I think they need to be growing the game and, and protecting the game in other areas. So that, that would be my two penna on it. There you go. Well, always great to talk to you, Phil. I'm going to get a putting lesson from you um, at some point because I am a horrendous putter. I've got to, fi- I've got to figure out whether I'm going left-handed or right-handed. Oh, so. yeah. do, you, do you put lefty? Yeah, I can. I'm bad both ways. So it doesn't. I'm a bad putter right handed. I'm a bad putter left handed. My dad always says, y- Your putts never have the go in look. They never look like they're going to go in. So I definitely need some help. We'll go arm lock. Arm lock right handed. And then um, long putter left handed. And a green reading book. I'm going to take all the help I can get. I appreciate it. Always good to talk to you. Yep. Cheers, Claude. Take care. Right, so that was Phil Kenyon, and I think um, if you don't get something out of that to help your putting, um, there's something wrong with you because, I mean, he unpacked a lot of stuff and a lot of really good information there and um, continued to be impressed with the work that Phil does with all of the players. He's the putting guru. All right, let's go to questions for this week. Someone wrote in and said they've been told they need to work on expectation management yeah, I mean, I think one of the hardest things in going to the golf course is, is managing expectations and, and, and managing kind of the mindset that you have when you're on the golf course. Um, I think it's really important to go out and really kind of stay in the present and really just stay focused on each individual shot because I think your expectations on not putting too much emphasis on what's going on in your warm-up, not putting too much um, emphasis on, on how you're practicing and getting into that, you know, going out, treating each shot individually. It's a cliche, but you know, cliches are cliches because they're true. And I think if you can focus on each shot 
as it comes. You can't control the shot you just hit. You can't control the shot that's around the corner. And I also think having realistic expectations as well when you go out on the golf course. I mean, you know, you're not going to hit every shot perfect. You're going to make bad swings. The best players in the world make bad swings as well. So managing expectations, I think, is really, really important. What's the one thing about being a golf coach that can be at times frustrating? Um, hey, it's always frustrating when you're working with players and, you know, they, they're they not getting uh, what they want out of their rounds. Um, you know, certainly on the PGA Tour, when a player misses a cut, that's always a tough one because it forces you as the coach to kind of, you know, evaluate kind of your performance and, you know, what are some of the things that you could do well. And, and that's certainly something that I'm doing on a regular basis and is I'm trying to kind of figure out ways that I can, you know, get better and, and do things um, better. So I think the hardest thing is when players struggle, you know, when they, when you feel like they're working on the right stuff and they're unable to put it in practice. Um, you know, certainly as a golf instructor on the PGA tour, one of the hardest things is, you know, it's hard to, once they start playing, it's hard to, um, you know, influence the outcome because once the players go out on the course, you can't really say anything. You can't really, you know, talk to them. So, um, you know, the good outweighs the bad, but, um, you know, when players aren't performing well, it's always tough to deal with. How many players would perform better if they weren't tied to one company? Um, I think equipment wise, there really isn't a lot of bad stuff out there. Um, you know, obviously there's balls that work for some people and don't work for other people. There's drivers that work for some people, but I think all the manufacturers out there do a great job at creating great products. Um, I think from a playing standpoint, um, if you are trying to choose equipment, you're trying to choose which equipment works for you and what, what you can do. What type of ball do you need? What type of driver do you need? Are you someone that needs more spin? Are you someone that needs less spin? You know, are you someone that needs more distance? Are you someone that needs more control? So I think equipment plays a huge part in helping players at all levels. But, you know, on the PGA Tour, I don't think there's, you know, a lot of bad equipment out there. And um, I think we see players, you know, play good with a variety of different equipment. Um, what have you and Pat Perez been working on? Um, started working with Pat uh, at Congaree, which was the week before the U.S. Open. And um, he was 125 on the money list that week on the FedEx Cup, sorry, and came to me and said, listen, you know, I've got to try and keep my playing privileges. There's not a lot of tournaments left. So one of the main things we've been trying to do with Pat is just kind of improve his impact position. He was, you know, really trying to hang back, hit draws, get that club working a little bit from the inside and, and his head was dropping back a lot. So just trying to feel like he's, you know, he's hitting the golf ball a little bit more solid and trying to improve his impact position. He had a tendency to get a lot of weight to kind of go to his left toe at impact. The chest and the hips would kind of stall and then the head would hang back and he had a lot of kind of hand rotation and face manipulation. So just really trying to get him a little bit more weight in his left heel at impact, trying to get him to feel like he covers the golf ball a little bit more with his torso and and get up on top of it. Um, been doing a lot of work on his putting stroke, his tendency with his putting has been to take the putter a little bit on the outside and cut across it. But really last week at, at 3M, just tried to get him to feel like that putter was going back almost what he felt was a little bit more on the inside. And he's moved to, I think, to 109 on the FedEx. So um, looking for a, a good week out at Reno and then he'll play Wyndham and hopefully can, I think, you know, he's going to have a good chance to secure his 
um, PJ Tour card for next year and get inside that top 125. And uh, he's been putting in a lot of work. I still think he's got a lot of good golf left in him. And it was nice to see him get back in the mix and have a chance to win at 3M because uh, when he gets chances, he's not afraid. Hopefully we can see some more of that. And that's a good segue into Pat Perez will be next week's guest on Off Course with Claude Harmon. One of the funniest guys on tour, straight shooter, never shy of an opinion. So it's a good one. You'll laugh. And he's got some great takes on kind of the way he sees golf and and what he likes about it, what he doesn't like about it. So looking forward to talking to Pat Perez next week. 